If you have your Bibles, um, that's great. If you don't have your Bible with you, we do have some at the side. If you want one, put your hand up. Rod, Brenda will hand them out um, and we will dig into that. So a few weeks ago, we studied Ephesians chapter 2 from verses 1 to 10, uh, where the Apostle Paul reminded the church in Ephesus of their former state outside of Christ. And we saw that God's mercy and great love had saved us from our spiritually dead state, which we were powerless to change ourselves. Now, off the back of that message, I had a great question from someone in the congregation, which I'd like to briefly address before we get into the rest of the chapter. And the question was, and I'm paraphrasing, what part do we play in our salvation? It feels as if I chose to follow God. An offer was put before me and I had to decide. It was either yes or no. And I decided which one seemed best. And I think that's a fantastic question. It's, uh, it would ideally be answered over a three-month sermon series. Um, so that's coming your way, Nathan. But um, I thought it would just give us a few thoughts uh, to help us think through a few things. So... Ephesians chapter 1, you may want to look there uh, to begin with. Paul emphatically states that God chose us for salvation before the world's foundation, not because he foresaw our faith, but because of his sovereign will. It was an act of his grace and love that predestined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ. So if you're there in Ephesians chapter 1, let's look at verses 4 to 5. So in verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And if you have a pen, I would underline he chose us. Moving forward to Ephesians 2, which we were in last time, we learn that our salvation is by grace through faith. However, even that faith is a gift from God, not something we can achieve or earn to ensure that no one can boast about their role in salvation. If you look at verse 8 in chapter 2, it says, For by grace... Remember, grace is unmerited or unearned favor. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. I'd underline that. Not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. If you move back the way to the Gospel of John, in chapter 3, Jesus uses a metaphor of being born again, which you probably remember, to illustrate the spiritual rebirth necessary to enter God's kingdom. So John chapter 3. If you look at verse 1, let's read it together. John chapter 3 verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, 
truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. As you know, a metaphor is an imaginative way to describe something by referring to something else that is similar in a particular way. So here we must appreciate the metaphor that Jesus uses and understand the connection that he is making. So three questions arise from what Jesus has just said. Did you choose to be born? Did you choose who your parents were? Did you choose to take life's first breath? Or was that a response to being born? Now, I'm no biologist, but um, I'd hazard a guess, say most people would answer no to those questions. Just as we did not choose our physical birth, we cannot cause our spiritual rebirth. It is the work of the Spirit beyond our control. So we have Paul saying God chose us in Ephesians chapter 1 where we started. He says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, which we saw last time in chapter 2. And we were saved by grace through faith, which is a gift so that no one can boast. Then we have Jesus' metaphor of being born again. And if we include the picture of Lazarus, Jesus' friend, and Jesus calling him from the grave, we can begin to see a picture of how God's salvation works. If you think of the alternative, if God had sat back providing a way to forgiveness through Jesus Christ and waited for humanity to trust him, no one would be saved because no one would choose him. How do I know that? Well, if we look back to Romans chapter 3, in verse 10, Paul quotes Psalm 14 when he says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. So to put this all together, what part do we play in our salvation None. The only thing we bring to the table is our sin. As Christians, what feels like a choice that we made at some point in our lives is actually a response to what God decreed before the foundation of the world and what was accomplished for us at Calvary. We've been made alive, revived, forgiven, set free, liberated from bondage. We've been shown mercy and love. He has done all the good work. There's no room for ours. Our response is to worship him, to follow him, and to share the good news. As I was trying to get to sleep last night, this thought came into my head that it's actually a perspective issue. From our perspective, it looks like we have chosen God. 
When we think of how we walk around on this earth, we look at the sky, we look at the sun. It looks as if the sun rises. It looks as if the sun sets. But from a heavenly perspective, the sun doesn't move. The earth moves. So here, from God's heavenly perspective, before the foundation of the world, he chose us. He called you by name. He has forgiven you. He has called you into his kingdom. So I hope that makes sense. No doubt some of you will have some follow-up questions. Um, But feel free to ask me at the end. That's fine. Okay, so let's move on to the rest of Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. So we're going to look at verses 11 to 22. Now remember this letter was written by the Apostle Paul while in prison in Rome, around about 62 AD. It's most likely a circular letter to the Gentiles in Ephesus, which is in western Turkey. And it's passed around different regional churches. And as we found out last time, it's an important city in the Roman Empire, which is home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Diana or the Temple of Artemis. The culture is immersed in sorcery, spell casting and the regular use of temple prostitutes it's an utterly pagan city at odds with the kingdom of god so if you're in ephesians 2 we're going to start at verse 11 so let's read that together therefore remember that at one time you gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's just quickly pray. Lord, we thank you for these words. We thank you, Lord, that through this uh, section of scripture, we could see that you have reconciled us to yourself. I pray that we would see this as we move through it open our eyes to your words. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is with us. Holy Spirit, illuminate your word to us now in Jesus' name. Amen.
So some of us will be old enough to remember Ronald Reagan's words in 1987 when he visited Berlin and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. He was speaking, of course, of the Berlin Wall, which divided East and West Berlin. It was built by the communist German Democratic Republican government, in their words, to stop fascist elements conspiring to prevent the will of the people. But in actual fact, it was to stop their people from leaving and anyone who disagreed with the Soviets from entering. So, it was guarded all along its length by armed soldiers. There were attack dogs. There was razor wire. There were watchtowers. It wasn't a boundary wall between friendly neighbours. This was a wall of hostility. Three years later, the wall eventually came down after a Soviet administration error, which allowed people to cross the border without government permission. Guards didn't know what to do. So they let people through checkpoints unopposed. Friends and family were reunited. They even had David Hasselhoff flown in to sing about freedom, which in my opinion is reason enough to rebuild the wall. Walls of hostility and division are not new though. In these 12 verses, Paul describes the great reconciliation in which Jews and Gentiles are reconciled in Christ and humanity is reconciled to God through Christ's work to break down the wall of hostility. Today, the Germans call the collapse of the Berlin Wall Die Wende, which means turning point. And this is the idea we'll see Paul describe as we move through the verses this morning. So if you're following along in your Bibles, you'll see the passage can actually be split into three sections. So you might want to highlight this in your margins. Verses 11 to 12 are marked by Paul urging the Ephesians to remember, to remember their former condition. And then from verses 13 to 18, he proclaims the good news by saying, but now in Christ Jesus. Then the last three verses from 19 to 22, he answers the so what question with so then, beginning in verse 19. If you find themes easier to think about, we can label these sections as being cut off, brought near, and made full fellow citizens. So looking at verse 11 to 12, Paul is calling to their minds their former state outside of Christ. He says they were called the uncircumcision. That's Gentiles, outsiders. They were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Those are the Jews, the insiders, which is made in the flesh by hands. Interestingly, not their hearts. This was an external outward sign of belonging to the covenant. They didn't necessarily, uh, it didn't necessarily mean that their hearts were changed. It was a physical outward sign. Paul actually addresses this in Romans chapter 2, verse 29, when he says, a Jew's claim to follow God can't just look good outwardly. Instead, circumcision is a matter of the heart. There was a great division between Jew and Gentiles at the time. The Jews wanted nothing to do with the low moral, social, and ethical standards of the Gentiles. 
They saw them as idolatrous planet worshippers who believed in many gods. On the other hand, Gentiles were suspicious of the Jewish belief in one invisible deity. Romans, in particular, couldn't separate the peace, security, and well-being of society from the worship of their gods. Failure to worship these Roman gods would literally bring disaster on society. Paul then reminds them of their previous condition. Look at verse 12. They were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That's the state and its laws and benefits. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. They had no hope. They were without God. Separated, alienated, strangers, no hope, without God. Not only was there a horizontal wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, there was a vertical wall between God and man. Only those who were righteous could draw near to God. Otherwise, access was denied. Paul wants to make sure the Ephesians remember their former condition so their new condition and identity don't become mundane. So Paul then moves from his theme of being separated, being cut off, to being brought near to God. So let's read again from verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the cross, in place of the two, so making peace and reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit and one father. And Paul isn't just metaphorically speaking about dividing walls here. There was a literal wall in the temple in Jerusalem that divided Jewish and Gentile believers in Yahweh. And by many factors, the Gentile section was the largest. The establishment of that court served as the Jewish response to the prophet Isaiah's declaration five centuries previously. In Isaiah 56, from verses 3 to 7, he foretold that the nations would gather in Jerusalem to worship Yahweh and his house would be recognized as a house of prayer for all peoples. And the area wasn't termed the Gentile court because the Jews avoided it, Instead, it earned the name to mark the limit to which Gentiles could approach the temple and God's presence. There were even signs, which you could still go to uh, and see in a museum in Istanbul today, which were carved into stones in three separate languages. that said, no foreigner, no Gentile is allowed past this point on pain of death. And if you remember, in Acts 21 Paul faced accusations from the Asian Jews who believed he had brought the Ephesian Gentile Trophimus into the temple, which led to a riot and nearly led to Paul being killed, not 
dissimilar to a Celtic supporter taking in his friend who's a Rangers fan into Parkhead. There would be a riot. Don't do that. Hopefully you can see the gravity with which the Jews upheld separation and, uh, between the Gentiles and the Jews. And once we understand that the temple context there, these verses become even more striking. The immediate context, though, is the abolition of the law. The ceremonies, the holy days, the kosher food, they've all been done away with. Look again, Paul says, because of Christ those who were far off have been brought near by his blood. There's now no barrier for believers on how close they can come to God. The dividing wall has been demolished. We now have 24-7 uninterrupted equal access to God's presence. Now you look at verse 14 and 15. He makes clear that there's no division between believing Jew and Gentile anymore. We've been made as one new man through faith in Christ, which has brought peace. Peace between those in Christ and God and peace between one another. This is where we as Christians have to be careful that we don't rebuild the walls of hostility between one another. And to be clear, we can undoubtedly disagree. We can hold a difference of opinion. But we don't allow ourselves to be doormats. The division I mean is where we see bitterness and anger fester. Division that sees Christian walk across the road because they don't like the other person coming in that direction to see them. The kind of hostility that sees the Christian withhold good from someone else because they've wronged them. If it's in your power to do good, you do good. Out of everyone in society, it should be the Christian who's quick to forgive, quick to show mercy, quick to show love. I'm not saying this is easy. Everyone struggles with this. But Jesus wouldn't command it if he didn't want us to do it. This should always be our aim because this is exactly how Christ treats us. And remember, one day you will need someone's forgiveness as well. Paul continues with a temple picture by saying, Christ came to preach to you who were far off, that's the Gentiles, and to those who were near, the Jews. There's no longer a hierarchical system where some have closer access to God than others. The cross of Christ also breaks down societal structures. That's why the poste, the sparky, the scaffolder can stand shoulder to shoulder with a person of faith who holds the highest office in this land. They can sit in the same pew and sing the praises of Jesus Christ together. What unites them is far greater than what divides them. That's why we have also to be careful not to create new tiered systems within the church that insist upon um, subsequent experiences like second blessings, 
sometimes referred to as a baptism in the Holy Spirit, which is a biblical term, but wrongly understood by some. That teaching creates an unnecessary division, a them and us, the haves and the have-nots. I don't have time to go into all of the details of that, but I just want to unpack some and draw your attention to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, because I think it's really important for us in order to appreciate the egalitarian nature of the kingdom and what Paul is getting at. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, stands against all three aspects of Pentecostal teaching on baptism with the Holy Spirit. And I don't speak to this as an outsider looking in, because I was an insider for 10 years and studied at the largest Pentecostal seminary in Europe for two. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. This verse explodes the myth of subsequence because it teaches that the believer is baptized by the Holy Spirit when he or she is made part of Christ's body and therefore of Christ himself. Thus the Christian is baptized with the Holy Spirit at their regeneration and union with Jesus Christ and not after it. Since a child of God is baptized by the Spirit at their regeneration and not after it, there's not one single believer who was baptized with the Holy Spirit after their regeneration post-Pentecost. The text lays great emphasis upon this, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. Paul also says later in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, there is one body, one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, there is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism. Not two, but one. But that should actually give those of us in Christ an assurance that the same Holy Spirit that lived in Paul and Peter and in Jesus lives in you now. He's not coming next Tuesday. He's here with you now. He lives here in you. We're the haves. The world are the have-nots. So moving on to the last few verses, Ephesians 19 to 22, they highlight the significance of our understanding and identity in Christ. The passage refers to believers as fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. As reconciled people, we are no longer estranged from God, but have been brought near to him through the sacrificial work of Christ on the cross. This reconciliation transforms our identity from being separated and lost in sin to becoming part of God's family. And recognizing our identity as fellow citizens with the saints means that we live with a sense of belonging and purpose. 
You see that uh, that Paul actually uses three metaphors there of being people, of being a household, being a temple. Those first two emphasize the relational security that we have. The third one emphasizes the fact that we have a seat at the table of the king. We're no longer isolated individuals, but members of a spiritual community bound by our common faith. This realization should foster a deep sense of love, acceptance, and support among believers as we're all united by our shared relationship with Christ. Verse 22 emphasizes that in Christ, we're being joined together. We're growing into a holy temple in the Lord. The unity of the church is not merely a theoretical concept, but it is a practical reality that should be lived out in our relationships with one another. As fellow citizens of God's kingdom, we're called to cherish and nurture a spirit of unity, mutual respect, and love within the body of Christ. And this unity goes beyond just mere tolerance. It calls for genuine care and concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are encouraged to bear one another's burdens, to support each other in times of need, and celebrate one another's victories. When we live in unity, we demonstrate the transformative power of the gospel in breaking down barriers of hostility and promoting a community characterized by grace, forgiveness, and reconciliation. We don't lie to one another. We don't manipulate one another. We don't bully one another. That's what the world does. Instead, our lives are characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Verse 22 describes believers as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The united church becomes a living testimony to the world of God's redemptive work and presence. When the church functions as a cohesive and harmonious body, it provides a powerful witness to the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Listening to a podcast this week, I heard Sinclair Ferguson describe the Holy Spirit as God's master mason who chips away at the blocks to make them fit together into the temple of God. But sometimes... That chipping away hurts, doesn't it? But we have to realize we are in expert hands. He'll make us conform to the likeness of Christ and he'll position us perfectly within the temple of God. We may not always like the stones we're put next to, but that's all part of the refining and building process. So let's bring this into land. Paul's message from verses 11 to 22, reminds us of the power of Christ's sacrificial love and reconciliation. He highlights the once deep division between Jews and Gentiles, representing humanity's separation from God and one another. However, through the work of Christ, 
The dividing walls have been broken down and unity has been established. We are now full fellow citizens in God's household. No longer strangers and aliens, but members of one body. This unity is not just an abstract idea, but a lived reality where believers are called to embrace their identity in Christ and demonstrate genuine love and care for one another. By living in unity and showing grace and forgiveness, the church becomes that living testimony to the transforming power of the gospel. As we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, chipping away at the rough edges, we are conformed to the likeness of Christ and positioned perfectly within God's temple. This process may be challenging to us at times, but it leads to a harmonious and powerful witness to the world. It's my prayer that we continually strive to be a united body and downfield, breaking down the walls of any hostility that may emerge and living out the love and reconciliation that Christ has brought us. In doing so, we fulfill the call to be ambassadors of God's kingdom, showing the world the transformative power of the gospel and the hope of true unity in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that through your son, the wall of hostility that divided us has been broken down. We thank you that you have brought us into your kingdom and that we are united. Lord, there are Christians all over the world. And we thank you that it doesn't matter what country you're from, what race you are, what age you are. We thank you that you who have called us, brought us together in Christ and made us one new man. We pray against the work of the enemy who may tempt us to build walls of hostility between one another. But may our little fellowship here be marked by love and forgiveness and grace and mercy. Because we are reminded of what your son has done for us through the cross. Lord, may this fellowship be a light to the world, bringing you glory, that people would see what you have done through us, and they would see that we are a new set of believers, that we do not serve foreign gods, as we sang earlier, that we serve and worship the one true God. Lord, we thank you for your word. May it bring glory to your name. Amen.